listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast by Dr. Robert Shaw. For a complete archive of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to be preaching through the book of Luke this summer. And I know some of you think, well, now, wait a minute. I'm not going to be here next week, or I'm going to miss a few weeks. And and we realize that some folks are only here once. Well, we have a couple of ways for you to hear the rest of the messages. If you'd like, you can either request a CD or you can go on our website and uh, kind of keep up with the chapel, uh, GardenCityChapel.com, and just click a link and you'll be able to listen to uh, a podcast of the message this summer. And uh, this is the first time we've really had the full uh, thing. Last summer, you can go back and pick up some of the end of First and Second Peter, but this year uh, we should have all of... Uh, the Gospel of Luke as we preach through uh, and, and look at the book of Luke this summer. So if you're interested in that sort of thing and want to keep up with the chapel, you're able to do that now uh, on, on our website. The book of Luke I really like. I like the, the way that Luke writes. I like the fact that it's a story of, uh, of the purpose of God. And you're going to see that this morning. Kind of the two things I want you to notice this morning, first of all, is that God hears prayer and answers prayer. We're going to talk about that. And the second thing is that God is purposeful. That God is purposeful. I don't know what you think about when you think about purpose for life. If you're a teenager, it's a good time to start thinking about, what is, why am I here? What is my purpose to be here? Why has God put me here? If you're not a teenager, it's still a good time to think about, okay, regardless of how old I am, how have I been doing in accomplishing what God's put me here for? It's amazing what some people's purpose are. You know, that I've been in some restaurants, like there's a roast beef place here that I won't give you the name, but the initials are RB, roast beef place. Their purpose is this, to make money, have fun, and make a difference in people's lives. Now, I don't know how they're doing with that. Uh, I don't know if you have fun when you go there, but I guess they're the ones that they want to be having fun. But I don't know if they've made a real difference in your life or not, but that's their purpose. That's why they exist as a corporation. Let me read another one. I don't think this is their slogan anymore, but in the early days of this corporation, their purpose was to give ordinary folk the chance to buy the same thing as rich people. Anybody want to guess who that is? Walmart. That was their purpose when they first started. Uh, Another one is simply to make people happy. Walt Disney. (laughs) That was their purpose. You're probably going to get this one. To inspire and nurture the human spirit. One person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Starbucks. That is the purpose of Starbucks. Now, everybody's going to get this one. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Anyone want to guess that? <laughs> it's the preamble to the Constitution of the United States of America. It's the purpose of our founding fathers when they founded this country. That's what they said that we were all about as a nation. I don't know how we're doing in purpose. Probably the most, uh, most powerful encounter I had with somebody on purpose was in a restaurant in upstate North Carolina. Excuse, excuse me, upstate South Carolina. 
And I walked in, and you know how restaurants now have buttons all over your vest and your shirt and all that kind of stuff? This one was like that. It was one of those restaurants that this dude had buttons. He's the biggest waiter I've ever had in my life. This guy was about 6'5 and like 300-something pounds. He was just huge. He looked like a, you know, like a big offensive lineman or something. And he was taking my order. And so I'm thinking, dude, I don't want to tick you off, so I'm just going to be nice. But I'm reading his little buttons, and he had the smallest little button. And it said this. It said, ask me about my purpose. And I thought, what a cool button. I'd like to have one of those buttons to be able to wear that so that maybe people would ask me what my purpose is and I could share Christ with them and tell them about the Lord and about what my purpose is. So I asked him, I I just, you know, I asked folks questions. So I said, let me ask you, what is your purpose? And he did this number. My purpose is that you have the best dining experience of your life. And I couldn't help but laugh. Keep in mind, this guy was huge and could have, like, crushed me under his thumb. But I laughed anyway, and and I thought, you know, dude, if that is your purpose, you need to get a life. We're going to look this morning at two specific purposes in this Gospel of Luke. And I want to share with you, I'm not going to read the whole passage at once. I'm going to read just the first few verses, but follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke chapter 1. I'm just going to read the first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. First thing I want you to see in this passage, and really just the beginning of this gospel that is a rather lengthy gospel, I want you to see that the gospel is reliable and verifiable. Do you know that there have been men throughout history, and perhaps women as well, that their goal was to disprove Christianity? Their goal was to study the Bible so that they could prove that it really wasn't accurate. And I don't know, it's a countless number of some that have, have actually, in the course of trying to disprove Christianity, have become Christians. Some of the folks named that maybe you would know is, is people like C.S. Lewis or Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel. Their goal was not to be a Christian. In fact, they wanted to prove to Christians that there really was no basis for what they believed in. And yet, as they sought to disprove it, they found that they could not only disprove it, they couldn't dismiss it. And they themselves had to, in turn, become followers of Jesus Christ because it really is good news. And that's really what Luke, where Luke is going to begin. He's writing to this guy named Theophilus. In fact, he calls him most excellent Theophilus. And some scholars think that It's really not a person that he's writing to. They think that it's just a general term because the the word Theophilus means friend of God or one who loves God. And yet I think it's actually a a person. I think that there's a person that, that Luke has been discipling, and I think his name is Theophilus, which is interesting to know that your parents would give you a name, friend of God. And in the course of this, Luke is writing to him, and apparently Theophilus had gained a basic understanding of the Christian faith. Perhaps he had already become a convert, It was just at the beginning of his journey of understanding all there was to know about this new Christian faith and who Jesus was. And he had trusted him as Lord and Savior, but wanted to know more. In fact, we were not going to look at it this morning, but if you ever want to look at the first few verses of Acts, Luke writes Acts and he starts the same way. Kind of volume two for Luke was the book of Acts. And we know about Luke. That Luke was a man who traveled with the Apostle Paul. And so when he says, I've researched this carefully, Literally, I have been diligent to trace out with precision 
And I've talked to eyewitnesses. I've talked to folks who were servants of the Word. In other words, ministers of the Gospel. And we don't know all the names of those people, but we know that he traveled with Paul. In fact, Paul mentions him in one of his epistles. He calls him the beloved physician, Luke. And probably toward the end of Paul's life, Luke was with him, and that may very well be where these two volumes were written. And so Luke said, you know, Theophilus, I want you to know, in fact, he uses the term, I want you to know the exact truth. I want you to have full evidence, or I want you to have proof of what you've been hearing about. And so Luke had set out. He, he could have read uh, some of the other things that had been written about Jesus. In fact, he said many people. And he's not just talking about Matthew and Mark, which were probably written before Luke was written. He's talking about many people have sought to write about that. But he said, I have taken it as my purpose. It seemed fitting for me as well to research and write about this most miraculous Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he started from the beginning. In fact, literally, he starts, goes back and does something that none of the other gospel writers do. He goes back to John, the one that some would call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And he wants Theophilus to know about these things that he's been taught. So look at the second thing then, and that is this good news that God hears and answers prayer. Let me pick up with verse 5. In the days of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blameless in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Let me just unpack a little bit about who John the Baptist's parents were. Their, their names we know are Zacharias. Some translations use the word Zachariah, but it's the same form. It's the same person. Zacharias and his wife, and Zacharias, his wife's name, John's mother's name, was Elizabeth. Zacharias' name means the Lord has remembered. And that's going to be important when you find out what it is that God remembered. Also, Elizabeth's name is God of the Oath. Here's the neat thing about both of them. They were both of a priestly family. In fact, in order to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of a line of a priestly family. And so Zacharias was a priest. But not only that, he was married to the daughter of a priest. And the Bible says that they walked blamelessly. They were righteous before God. Isn't that a cool thing to be righteous in the sight of God? It's one thing what other people think of you, and I'm sure that folks would have looked at Zacharias and Elizabeth and thought, man, he's a priest, she's a preacher's daughter. You know, they, they must have it all going on. They must be right with God. But more than that, the Bible says they were right and righteous in the sight of God. In God's eyes, He sees the heart. So beyond just their performance and their behavior... He saw all the way to the core of their heart, and they were right with God. In fact, I would say that this couple probably felt like, you know what? We've got it all together. We, we really have been blessed of God except for one thing. It says that Elizabeth was barren. She had had no child. And in that day and age, to have no child, a lot of folks consider that as a curse from God. And yet, what do we know about Elizabeth and, and Zacharias? They were righteous in the sight of God. So what does that mean? It means this. It is possible to be right in the center of God's will and righteous, and yet sometimes bad things happen. In this case, Elizabeth was barren. And to further complicate the problem or to further, I guess, make it look hopeless, they were both advanced in years. They were old. You know, people are starting to look at me and going, dude, you're advanced in years. I guess that's a nice way of saying you're old. But what is it saying about Zacharias and Elizabeth? 
is saying their chances of a solution to the problem of Elizabeth's barrenness and the fact they have no child to carry on, not only the family name, but even to take care of them in their old age. It looked hopeless because they were both old. And we know that, you know, babies don't come to old people. Well, we can look back in the Old Testament and find out that in the case of Abraham and Sarah, it sure did. In the case of Elizabeth and Zacharias, it certainly was going to happen. The good news is God had seen their heart. And even though they were both advanced in years, God was about to do something miraculous as part of his purpose for the world. Let me continue in verse 8 and follow along. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Let me give you the picture of what's happening. Because Zacharias was a priest, twice a year he would go to the temple for a week, and so he would leave his hometown. He and his wife would travel to the temple, and for a week he would perform priestly duties. He'd leave at the end of the week, The next week, another group of priests. So he wasn't the only priest there, but another group of priests would come in and perform the duties that they needed to perform at the temple. And it says that he was chosen by lot. Some manner of, you know, I don't think this is paper, rock, scissors, but something like that. They would cast lots, and the lot would point to Zacharias for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I want you to catch this, because what's about to happen in the middle of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity is significant. Why is it once-in-a-lifetime? In order to offer incense at the at the temple you didn't just get to do this because you were a priest you could have been a priest your entire life and never get to perform this twice daily function in the temple and that was to offer incense incense was kind of the embodiment of prayer and praise back in the old testament we see god inhabiting the temple back when it was just a tent and then when it became a temple his presence dwelt there And so they believed by offering incense, which they were commanded to do in the Old Testament, this sweet fragrance was like part of their prayer, their offering, their sacrifice to God. And so as a priest, to have the privilege of doing that was just an incredible opportunity. We don't know how old Zacharias was, but we know that he was old, right? Advanced in years. He had never done this before. He had known other priests that had gotten to do it. He had heard their comments as they returned, but he had never had the opportunity to offer incense. The incense. And so this is his once in a lifetime opportunity. And now that he's done it this week, he'll never get to do it again. So what happens while he's in there? Now, this altar of incense would have been right outside the Holy of Holies. Now, there's the holy place. The temple was divided up into several sections. There was the court of the Gentiles, then there was the court of the male Jews and the, and the female Jews. And you'd kind of get a little closer into the temple. And he was in this holy place, which was right there at the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. In case you're a historian and you want to know about all that stuff, that's where the incense would be taking place. So he's, he's in this place by himself and something miraculous happens. Now keep in mind, you've never been back there before. You've been trained on what to do when you get in there. You go in there to offer incense and all of a sudden an angel appears. 
And what is the first thing that most angels say when they approach people? When the angels approach the shepherds on the hillside, they say the same thing. Don't be afraid. (laughs) Why do they have to say that? Because the people were afraid. You weren't expecting this. You know, they had told you, go in there and here's how you offer the incense. Here's how you're going to light it. Here's what you're to do. You're to be praying and offering up the prayers of the people. You're representing them before God. And in the middle of that, an angel stands there. And you don't know whether he's got good news or bad news. We know from the Old Testament that there were times that people approached God in an unworthy manner and lightning or fire came out from the mercy seat and consumed them. Nadab and Abihu, for example, we found out they just kind of bebopped back in there with their incense and did it in an unworthy manner. And God said, that's not the way you approach me. It cost them their life. So I imagine even offering incense this close to the Holy of Holies, you had to have some sort. You were just intense on what you were doing. And now all of a sudden an angel appears. But he had good news. He said, your petition has been heard. And some scholars debate over what was the petition. Because he goes on to say, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. Was, was that his petition? They basically, most scholars believe this was just a one, one-time prayer. So I don't know if, if Zacharias was in the midst of God and he was praying on behalf of the people, but he was also remembering, God, and I also pray for my wife. I pray that we'd be able to have a child. Even in our own age, could we pray for something that miraculous to happen? So whether this was a prayer that he had offered years earlier and it had stayed a constant prayer for him or whether it was the prayer of that moment, he heard good news from the angel and the good news was your prayer, your petition has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear a son. Your petition is heard. You see, I think sometimes we think God doesn't hear prayer because he hasn't answered it yet. In fact, I think there's times that God has answered prayer. It's just not the way we were wanting it to be answered. You know, God answers prayer. Sometimes His answer is yes. Sometimes His answer is no. Sometimes His answer is wait. And so in a sense, God had been answering Zacharias and Elizabeth's prayer for a child for all those years they have been praying it. And the answer was wait. Now students, I don't know how it works with your parents when you ask them something. I learned long ago that if, I, if my children ask me for something and I say maybe, to them that means yes. <laughs> to me it meant maybe not. <laughs> but all they heard was yes. My parents, I remember, would say, we'll see. If I ever asked them for something and they said, we'll see, that meant no. It just meant they were too chicken to tell me no right then. They wanted to kind of postpone it. Kind of let me warm up to the idea that it wasn't going to happen. Well, God doesn't answer prayers like that. But sometimes God says, yes, I'm going to grant your prayer, but I'm going to do it in my perfect timing. See, God had a purpose for their child that was going to be born, and their purpose for John was to prepare the way of the Lord. He was going to be the one that came before Jesus to tell people about the coming of the Messiah and prepare a people even for that event to take place. And so your prayer has been heard. And you will name him John. This is incredible. Not long after this, the same angel is going to appear to Mary and going to tell her that she's going to have a child. She's going to have a son, and his name is going to be Jesus. In this case, the son's name will be John. And you may be disappointed to find out. Now, in the midst of the temple, you're offering sacrifices. You're at the closest thing you'd ever get to to being in the presence of God. An angel appears there and says, your prayers have been answered. 
You're going to have a child. And how does Zacharias respond? How can I know this for sure? (laughs) Folks, if you're ever in the temple praying and an angel appears and tells you something, take his word for it. How will I know that this is going to happen? And what does the angel say? If you read a little further in the passage, the angel says, because of your disbelief, you're not going to be able to talk until after the child is born. That's going to be your sign. And literally it was a punishment. See, Zacharias was about to walk out from offering incense. The people, it says, are outside praying along with him. This was a huge deal. This was a huge event. Most scholars believe this was actually because there was such a multitude. This was probably happening on the Sabbath. This was the day of worship, the most holy day. And Zacharias would have loved to have gone out and said, Hey, I just saw an angel. He just told me I'm going to have a son. I just got to offer incense at the at the incense offering, and I just got to have this once-in-a-lifetime experience. But he's going to walk out, and he can't say a word. But that's going to be a constant reminder to him that God is going to fulfill this promise. Because you know what? God not only hears prayers, God answers prayers. And students, adults, sometimes we need to know. Sometimes His answer is no. But even when the answer is no, remember this. God's good. God knows what's best. And sometimes what we pray for, God is better to say no. Sometimes his answer is yes. And sometimes his answer is yes, but wait. And in this case, it was, it was wait. Now, it's interesting to me. I want to get to the next point as we close, and that is that God is purposeful. But I want you to kind of see the end of the story, and then I want to come back and close with the purpose part. John the Baptist indeed, or John the Baptizer indeed, will ultimately be born. In the midst of that, when, when Elizabeth is about six months into her pregnancy, an angel appears to Mary. And tells Mary, who is Elizabeth's cousin, that she's going to have a child. Now, the angel had also told Zacharias that even while in his mother's womb, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you read further into the passage, you see after Mary has been visited by the angel to tell her that she's going to bear a son, she goes immediately over to Elizabeth. And we know that Elizabeth... Didn't even go out in public for five months. It says this later in the passage. She stayed inside for about five months. I think part of that is she's been barren all of her life. When she goes into public for the next time, it's going to be obvious to everybody that God has answered her prayer and that God had removed what she considered to be her reproach. But as Mary approaches Elizabeth, keep in mind that that they're about six months apart in their pregnancy. It says that John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb filled with the Holy Spirit, recognizing that approaching Him was God's Son, Jesus. God Himself in the flesh. And it says that He leapt in His mother's womb. After He's born, they, on the eighth day, take John back to the temple to be circumcised and to be dedicated to the Lord. And at the temple, He has not been named yet. So the crowd says, well, what are you going to name Him? And they assume He's going to be Zacharias Jr. or something from their family name. And Elizabeth said, no, his name will be John. I don't know if you find humor in Scripture. I find some humor happen here. The people make gestures to John to find out, is that right? Is that really what you want him to be named? See, the Bible doesn't say that John was deaf. It just says that he was mute. That he wasn't able to speak. And yet I guess these folks interpreted the fact he couldn't speak that he couldn't hear either. It's kind of like when you meet people from another country that speak a foreign language We assume that if we speak louder, they understand us. (laughs) Well, if you don't understand the language, it doesn't matter what volume you promote it at. 
Well, John the Baptist, or, or Zacharias, who was just simply not able to speak, he, he nodded, he assented, yes, his name will be called John. At that moment, his lips were loosed, and it says that he began to praise God. And you think, well, yeah, I'd praise God too if I hadn't talked for nine months. But more than that, keep in mind, he really hasn't been able to say anything since he had this miraculous experience. He hadn't really been able to describe it in detail other than I guess he wrote notes to his wife to tell her that his name will be John. But now he's able to, after nine months, finally explode with worship to honor and praise God for this blessing that God has bestowed upon their family. And God has answered their prayer. The last thing I want you to see is in the remaining verses, and that is that God is purposeful. Folks, God is intentional. What you see in this passage is God preparing the way for Jesus. This was not a last-minute plan B activity for God. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, even before that, God prepared and knew the plan for me and you, and that was that one day we would trust Christ as our Lord and Savior. And one day Jesus Christ would come to pay the penalty for our sin and die on the cross. One day He would be born in Bethlehem. There's so much about that story that some people look at and think, well, it was accidental that they were where they were when Christ was born. Or it was accidental that Christ was killed on a cross. No, it has been the purpose of God since the very beginning. And it was prophesied throughout the whole Old Testament. Numerous, over 300 prophecies of this event of Christ that was about to take place. And so God sends one to prepare the people's heart for him. In fact, the angel says to Zacharias, here's some things I want to tell you about your son. Joy and gladness will accompany his birth. There will be rejoicing at his birth. Why? Not just because your barren wife is going to have a child. But we have been waiting for a deliverer to come. We've been waiting for God to solve the issue of our separation from Him. And so the joy is that John would be born and he would be the one that as a spokesman went out to prepare the people's heart for the Lord. And it said that he will turn many back to the Lord. He's speaking primarily to the people who were called the children of Israel. These were the people of God and yet they had turned from God. And what does John the Baptist do? He goes out into the wilderness and he says, Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from the way you're going because there is one coming who is a deliverer and your hearts need to be ready to receive Him. And folks looked at John as one of greatness. In fact, John had a, his own following of disciples that followed him. And yet in the midst of that, John knew his place. In fact, John said this about Jesus. He says, you know, you're coming to me to be baptized, but there's one coming after me that I am not even worthy to untie his sandal. I want you to think about that for a minute. Why would anybody untie somebody else's sandal? Well, it happened every day in that part of the world, and it would be a servant that would untie your sandal to wash your feet. And here's what John's saying. Hey, you think I'm something? I'm not even willing to be a servant that would untie his sandal because he is God and I'm not. In fact, his disciples really didn't get it, and they came to him. Basically, their attitude was, John, you know, people are starting to follow Jesus now. All these people that have been following you, they're starting to follow Jesus. And John is saying, that's exactly what they're supposed to do. I wasn't here to create a fellowship for me. I was here to prepare the way of the Lord. And what does he say? 
He must increase. I must decrease. You're not going to hear about me much anymore. You're going to hear about Him because I'm not, even un- I'm not worthy to untie a sandal. That's God. That's the Deliverer. That's the Savior of the world. He must increase and I must decrease. Well, the point of the message this morning is this. Number one, God answers prayer. I used to keep a little card in the back of my Bible, and every time I read a verse about prayer, especially just what, what are the requirements for prayer, I'd make a little note on it. I, I want to close by just sharing a few things that I've read throughout Scripture. Requirements for receiving from God if you're praying. First is that you must be a child of God. Second, you must be obedient. 1 John chapter 3, verse 22 says that if you come to God, you must keep His commandments. And if you do, He hears you. You must have the proper motive. In James chapter 4, He says the reason you ask and don't receive is you ask with the wrong motives. God is willing to give you what you're asking. He wants to be the giver of every good and perfect gift. But if you're asking just for yourself and for wrong motives, then He won't answer your prayer. 1 John 5 goes on to say, you must pray according to His will. You must be submissive to His will. And that's the bottom line. Regardless of what I pray, ultimately, I don't want my will done. I want God's will done. So whether it's pray, you're praying for some blessing, you're praying for someone who is sick, ultimately you want God to be glorified in that, and ultimately you want His will to be done. You must be persistent. I love the story over in Luke where it talks about a woman who gets out of bed and goes over to a neighbor's house and asks for something to give their company that have arrived late. And the person inside the house said, no, it's too late. Everybody's asleep. I don't want to wake the whole household. But she keeps persisting. And as Jesus teaches this story, he says, you know, the reason that the guy finally gets up to give her something to eat is because of her persistence. In fact, Jesus put it this way, ask, seek, and knock. Ask and you will find. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be given to you. And those words kind of indicate a progression here. First, you just start out asking, then you start out diligently seeking, but ultimately you're actually physically knocking at God's door, really, just to have God hear your prayer and answer your prayer. And lastly, you must ask in faith. James 1. Verses 5 through 7 basically says if you ask, you must ask in faith because if you don't ask in faith, don't expect to receive anything. Zacharias had prayed this prayer for a child. And he was a priest. He had been praying on behalf of the people. And when he heard that his prayer had been answered, I think he demonstrated a lack of faith. I mean, I think he believed in God with all his heart and knew that God was able to do what he's asking him to do, but he looked at his circumstances and thought, the time has passed. If God was going to do this, he would have had to have done it when we were younger. And yet here's the good news about God. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we could ask or think. He is not limited by doing things the way the world does when it looks hopeless and helpless is when God quite often answers prayer. Why? Because He gets credit for it when He does it that way. And some people say, well, if He already knows my need, why do I need to pray? Well, the fact that I pray, yes, God already knows my need before I even ask it, the, the Bible tells me. But it keeps me connected to my source and it keeps me connected to that one who is answering my prayer. So God answers prayer and hears prayer. 
And the last point I want, you to leave, I want to leave you with this is just the purpose of God. The purpose of God was to send Jesus Christ to be born in Bethlehem, to live about 33 years, and ultimately to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And we see this morning, just in this story of John, just the beginning of the end. God had been working this purpose for hundreds and really thousands of years throughout the Old Testament. We now come to the birth of John, preceding then the birth of Jesus. And he's about to accomplish what he had promised for thousands of years to accomplish, the redemption of mankind. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that we know, Father, when we pray, that you hear us. And God, there's probably someone here this morning that feels like their prayers have been bouncing off the ceiling. They're not sure if you're hearing them. And so, God, I pray they'd kind of go back to that list of six thoughts, but primarily, God, do they know you personally as Lord and Savior? And if they do, are they, are they praying with pure motives? God, help check their heart. But also, God, in the midst of their waiting, would you give them comfort that you are good? God, you will provide at the proper time. And God, I thank you that you have a purpose that you are working out over the course of history. And ultimately, that purpose will bring about the return of Christ to this earth to claim his own, his his church. And God, as we look forward to that, Lord, you haven't sidestepped, you haven't delayed. Lord, you are right on track with your purpose. You're intentional, and we thank you. Remind us of that constantly. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.